Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tosh Robinson. Scott Tobias. And behind the boards, it's Genevieve Kosky. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about Dario Argento's 1977 film, Suspiria. Now we're going to talk about a 2016 film, Nicholas Winding Refn's The Neon Demon, which works as a contemporary companion piece. On hand from Suspiria, the jealous young competitive women, this time models instead of dancers, the aggressive color scheme, the even more aggressive music, the slow creep of the supernatural into the mundane world, the sometimes awe-inspiring gift for composition, the mounting sense of dread and danger, and scenes of explosive violence. Yet, just as Argento set himself apart from his strongest influence, Alfred Hitchcock, Refn's film, which borrows liberally from Argento, Lynch, and others, still feels like the product of a singular voice that mixes undeniable artfulness with an almost adolescent desire to shock. I see 20 or 30 girls come in here every day from small towns with big dreams. Some girls crack under the pressure. You, you're going to be great. What's it feel like to walk into a room? It's like in the middle of winter. You're the sun. everything. So guys, we struggled mightily before deciding to pair these movies. Now that we've watched them back to back, do they make sense as companion pieces? Oh, absolutely. I don't think there was ever any question that Suspiria and Neon Demon went well, like went together like peanut butter and jam. I think it was just that there were so many other good choices. And some of those were films we really wanted to talk about, like Sunset Boulevard and Mulholland Drive. It's it's not, were these films going to work together? It's, <laughs> are we giving up the opportunity to talk about these other films that we want to talk about? Mm-hmm. We'll find a way. We'll get and, it and, and are we giving up the opportunity to include Genevieve on the podcast? <laughs> because uh, she... Uh, uh, 
uh, subjecting she's, her she's to scared. two completely uh, yeah, or, but, or violently violent I mean, films. Yeah, but I mean, Genevieve does not do maggot storms. <laughs> Although I thought Neon Demon was the the big holder up there. Yeah, I mean, I think we just were maybe wanting to uh, go back a little bit more in, in time. And, and we're, we're protective of our Genevieve. Yeah, we are. We are. But I, I, <laughs> we I mean, tried, to me, we I tried I, describing I, everything gross that happens in Neon <laughs> Demon in in close clinical detail, and yet she still didn't want to see it for some reason. For some reason, we struggled collectively to figure out a pairing with the neon demon but uh, i did not struggle at all because i think these two films are very very closely linked um uh and uh have a lot in common both in terms of style um obviously the brilliant very bright vibrant use of color and the content which i guess we'll get into now yes yes let's the neon demon i'm still sorting through this movie which i think is a good thing and i know I like it. It's an enthralling film, just visually striking. I can't decide how rich it is or if it's rich at all. This may be kind of Argento-esque in in that it is a a film of sensation and bold themes, but not necessarily much beneath the surface to talk about. Or I maybe it's been missing all that entirely in a second viewing, which I did not have the luxury of undertaking, uh, would reveal a lot. So I don't know. Tasha, you want to start you want to start us off with the Neon Demon? I think that Neon Demon is actually a very rich movie. I have very distinct problems with the storytelling, much like I did with Suspiria. Um, I think we might get into spoilers later, but just to speak very broadly, there's a shift towards the end of the movie that I think makes plausible sense for the story that Refn is telling, um, but also just kind of loses the movie a lot of its impetus and power, loses a lot of what's interesting about it for me. Because what's interesting about it for me is the exploration of uh, Elle Fanning's character. And specifically, I feel like what's going on in this film that I haven't seen much of before is this is a very conventional story about a small town girl who comes to the big bright city and falls in among the famous and is trying to become famous herself and sells out. What I have never seen before that I recall is she is very eager to sell out and she fits in really well with selling out. In fact, more than some of the people who are kind of evilly mentoring her in selling out. Mm -hmm. And I find this to be a story about how people turn themselves into commodities in the Hollywood environment or L.A. or New York, any of these places where you become the product that you're selling and you have to go to a studio or some other large organization to kind of vet you and present you and, and sell you. So much of this film is about what happens when you turn yourself into a product and nobody wants to buy anymore. Or when you turn yourself into a product and everybody wants to buy, what does that make you? What does it do to you as a person? I bristle a little bit at the term selling out because I, because I think she knows what she wants and she it's about it's a journey of uh, self-realization for her more than a journey of selling out. This is what she wants. And uh, what is surprising to me about her behavior throughout the film is how completely confident and self-possessed she is about what she has to offer. She's 16 years old and she's posing as a 19-year-old. And I think there's a certain amount of trepidation as she's exploring this very competitive and very dangerous 
world, but but there's never any doubt on her part as to her own beauty. But I think you're right in the sense that beauty is what this film is about. It is a, a commodity in the film, and it's a commodity that is both uh, precious and, and rare, but also volatile and subject to whatever the trends of the day day is and whoever is doing the looking. And there's just this this thin, almost impossible to discern line between you know the person who comes there on the bus from Indiana and makes it and the one who gets sent back home or, it, or, or falls into some tragic or fate. It reminded me a little bit of the L.A. Confidential uh, because you had yeah. that character in this film who is constantly having all of these microsurgeries to her face to kind of get it into uh, you know a certain shape that is going to get her work and uh you know you, you can't help but think of kim basinger and that that business that that she's in um and the letters that we got talking about the specific analysis of kim basinger did not have her face cut and that how that makes her more authentic which mm-hmm. we have a very direct discussion of that in this film um from the point of view of one of the designers who talks down people who've had surgery as as inauthentic and plastic mm-hmm. and praises fanning yeah, it, it's also a sense of beauty to circle back to what Scott was saying as dangerous, both to Jesse, Elle Fanning's character, and to those around her. I mean, she's constantly imperiled by men who want something from her. At best, it's something professional they want from her. Um, she has a she has a sort of earnest boyfriend who might actually be interested in her emotionally, but that doesn't necessarily get her anything. But there's also the sense that her beauty is disarming and unnerving in a way that can cause other people to harm each other. It's interesting that way. One thing that I kind of want to pose to you guys, given in part that you're guys and given that you're human beings other than me, we're told over and over throughout the film that Jesse has it, some indefinable it. And the people who look at her are stricken, like sometimes visibly shocked and stricken by her beauty and uh, like immediately want to hire her, immediately want to work with her, immediately want to bring her in on their shoot. Do you see anything about her that is distinctive in any way from the other incredibly beautiful people in this film? I think it's portrayed that way. And, and I think not to take it's a premise that yeah. we accept. Yeah. She's one of the few people she's had this tremendous self-obsession for a long time. She's one of the few actresses or actors that I know of that, that actually played a character uh, older than she was in, like in Ginger and Rosa. She, she played older. And so I think she's well cast in that sense as, as well. And I, I, I buy, I mean, I buy the, the premise. It's not that I don't buy the premise. It's that I wonder how much that's part of the story. I, I just find it a really interesting aspect. I always come back to Milos Forman's Amadeus and how that movie portrays the beauty of Mozart's music for people who may or may not have any kind of ear for it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. How it, it filters it through a character who's so stricken with it and so taken with it that we're stricken with it in the same sort of way. I wonder if that's what's going on here, if that's what's meant to be going on, or if there's actually another layer. You know, to me, Jesse is actually less striking than some of the other models around her. And it seems to me that that could be part of it, that that could be part of the story he's telling is as they they actually do kind of refer to the undefinable it, mm-hmm. whatever it is that makes her. If there's no clear undefinable it that makes her like obviously, I mean, you can't control how 
individual viewers to your film, whether they're going to look at her and say she's the most beautiful person in the film Mm. or she's the most possessed person in the film. I wonder if that's another part of the story is just that the things that drive these selections, the things that make one incredibly beautiful woman yesterday's hot garbage and a different incredibly beautiful woman, the it girl of the moment – are meant to be portrayed as as arbitrary, arbitrary. and shallow. Uh, yeah, arbitrary. Yeah, I, I think I think it's actually it can work b- both ways in that, in that it is arbitrary uh, what we consider beautiful and not a lot of the time. I, I think maybe the film is implying that. But as you were saying in your comparison with Amadeus, this film also does I think a pretty good job of selling its premise through reactions that other people have to Jesse, to the reactions from other models, from the reactions to photographers. I mean they all they all know it. I mean we may not know it, but they know it. And so maybe that's their maybe that's their world. Maybe maybe photographers and, and fashion people, you know, under understand what that look is better than better than we do. But I think there is an element of arbitrariness and also I think crucially an element of uh, instability to it. You know, because there is going to be a point who know who knows down down the line. We won't we won't find out when Jesse won't be the it girl anymore when she will have been on in too many photo shoots and too many covers or whatever and people will be too familiar with her and then they'll or move she'll on be to the 20, next thing. 23 or whatever the logic of the and the, and the logic of the film where you're way over the hill. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Or in her case 18 because she right. started so much earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she, uh, right. And so and what will happen to her then? But we we don't even get to that point. So on to topics, there's a lot to talk about here. Maybe the best segue from Suspiria would be to talk about colors, which, Scott, I know you would like to talk about. Yeah, this is going to get a little philosophical (laughs) as well. But one of the prominent elements that connects Suspiria to the Neon Demon, obviously, is the use of color. Vibrant, you know, retina-searing primary colors that excite the senses and heighten the emotions. I mean, one of the things that struck me when I was watching, just just when the Neon Demon opened, it was like, I thought I was, it felt like 3D without glasses, the way that the colors were kind of shimmering and, and coming through the screen. You know, we can talk about what these colors represent, especially the color red. Uh, we can talk about how Nick Reffin is colorblind and how that informs his, his palette in this and other films. Uh, but for me, bold colors have a basic primal appeal that really isn't all that sophisticated you know babies are attracted to colors you know monkeys are attracted. You know, uh, and when they're de- de- deployed as artfully as they are in the ne- neon demon and suspiria my response is not really not all that sophisticated they're striking and pleasing and sensual and the effect of these two movies is hypnotic and not something that can be easily articulated. We talk a lot on this show and in the culture about the intricacies of character and theme because uh, there are things that we can expound on endlessly. We can talk about motives and we can talk about story strands and how things kind of pull together thematically. Uh, But the sensual qualities of film uh, can be harder to identify and and articulate. Uh, But it's also the primary reason I watch movies uh, because movies are this illicit, immersive, you know, expressive experience and to me it's kind of the bolder the better and so so Suspiria's and the Neon Demon are appealing to me just as a filming experience and color is a big part of that like a baby like a baby like a baby it's like I, I really I'm, you know deep down I'm just kind of a sensation seeker in folks a lot, in a lot of ways. do not show these films to your babies <laughs> no, these, are not, no. these are not movies for babies uh, but you know what I mean I mean, this, you know there's something just prim- no, I know primally I was, appealing I was gripped by this I mean we can talk about we can bring the sound into it as well but like that opening scene with the brightness and, and the, the, the synth score just, just pulsing I saw this played very loudly oh God, and yeah. I, think it, I think it should be mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it is overwhelming in the best sense uh, Cliff Martinez does an incredible job 
job with that score. Cliff Martinez is one of my favorite score composers. Yeah, I mean, when we when we talk about color being appealing and striking to babies, what we're talking about is color being appealing and striking in a way that that steps past our intellect, something exactly. that's much more primal yes. and inborn. And both of these films use color very specifically to heighten the sensations that we're feeling and to kind of tap into this very primal place, this very intense I, I almost want to say simplistic because we see so many like just vivid washes of color that are so intense, especially with the reds in both films, that they wash out all other color. But there's nothing simplistic about it. It becomes this uh, this thing that's trying in a very specific way to access the idea of of hysteria, of female hysteria, of sexual frenzy, of nubileness and an erotic emotional state. I mean, they're they're very erotic colors. These are very you say sensual. It's yeah. it's sensual, but it's also it's appealing to a place of overwhelming emotion. And I think that that's why the colors are so overwhelming. Although when I found out about Refn being colorblind and using these incredibly oversaturated colors because they're the only colors he could see, I was a little taken aback because. They strike us in such a specific way, and they seem to be tapping into such a specific thing. And then for the filmmaker, they mean something entirely different. I think he kind of knows what he's doing, though, in, in mixing the, these elements together. Yeah, though I will say, you know, the thing that's interesting, I mean, we talk about sensuality. I think the uh, Refn's career has moved more toward super formalist filmmaking. Uh, this this film, and Only God Forgives, and to some to a certain extent, drive um you know they're very composed and very cold and you know those are words that you don't really apply to films that have some sort of sensual erotic appeal i mean i think so there's almost there's also almost an element of the neon demon that belongs as much in like a contemporary art museum as it does an art house so uh so it's a it's an odd film to process as a sensual experience um except the, that one of the things Refn does over and over is present these characters who are very cold and very composed on the surface and then use things like the color and the music and then their specific actions to let us tap into what's going on below the surface and to suggest this depth of feeling and depth of intensity that we wouldn't get from their faces and Ryan Gosling is kind of the perfect vehicle for that he looks so composed Elle Fanning there are sequences in this you talk about how she's not really selling out she's packaging and selling herself there's a sequence in this film where she pretty literally puts herself in the hands of a photographer mm. that she her facial expression barely changes you know she what is she is presenting to the camera is this sort of sensuality of experience based on what she's experiencing in the moment but it's very cold and it's very composed and it is not in any way a cold scene it is a terrifying emotional mm. scene yeah and the the gold that is being applied throughout that scene and that is coming to like take over the entire frame is a very intense and purposeful color. There's just there's so much that goes on here that's about the contrast between the cold clinical formalist feelings and then the intensity of color and feeling underneath them. That, that's true. So when you talk about is the film rich, I think that's where the film is rich, is mm -hmm. in all of these different contrasts and things pushing against each other at all times. I know you're right. What throws me off is is we're getting on topic of color here, but what throws me off in terms of, of like, is this film brilliant or is it a provocation or is it some sort of mixture of the two is things like the necrophilia scene, <laughs> which, which I think I've had a conversation with other people. It's like, 
maybe that was unnecessary. It feels like it's unnecessary to the film. It feels like unnecessary to the the, the overarching themes. It seems like it's just thrown in there for for shock value. I don't necessarily feel like it contributes to the film. On the other hand, I think you really wanted to shoot a necrophilia scene, and there you go. So that's where when I say there's an adolescent quality to it, I don't necessarily mean that as an insult. But there is kind of some excess in it for for its own own sake in this film. Although I can see, I think I was a teenager when I saw Suspiria, and I thought, and this is like even on on VHS and you know <laughs> pan and scan. But I thought this is the this is like nothing I've ever seen before. This is a weird messed up movie I have to watch over and over and over again. I, I I can see that being this being that movie for somebody as well. That was that was the one scene in the film that did didn't square with me either. That that aspect, which is involves Jenna Malone, who's not. Not, not our main character, who is a who is one of several characters who are, who are obsessed with. It's one of the few Jesse. times we leave Jesse's side, right? Exactly, and I, and I and I and I try to I try to fathom what he was on about there. I mean, I get the other stuff. I get the the vampirism. I guess sure. you would call it or cannibalism. I mean, I understand metaphorically where where he's going with some of the other extreme aspects of the film, but that I was kind of baffled by that. And that's to me, it makes me a little suspicious of the rest of the film. Oh, I, I understand that. I mean, from from interviews I've read, it seems like that was something that they just kind of came up with on the set. Like Refn, <laughs> well, Refn works very much from the hip and he he does a lot of planning, but then he wants his actors to be in the moment and experience what they experience. It's very key to his working process. And he does a lot of development like in the moment and on the day. Yeah, he films in sequence and has a script that seems to get increasingly discarded as the film goes along yeah. for, for all his films. The whole idea of shooting a film like this that's so so based around a few locations and the shooting it in sequence is just, I just, I want to pull my hair out. It's just, it's madness. Mm. It's absolute madness. <laughs> but I, I think the problem with shooting from the hip and letting your uh, actors improvise and coming up with stuff based on a gut feeling on the day is that you get stuff like this, which I don't think the necrophilia scene... I mean, if I wanted to defend it, uh, I would repeat everything I just said about the the difference between the closed, ungiving facade and the steamy passion. I mean, you've got uh-huh. a corpse and a living person. <laughs> like yeah. it's all it's all very metaphorical, but it's also gross and it's also, pointless. It, I mean, you know, it's not really the movie's not about Jenna Malone. Exactly, she, she's terrific, um, and one of the better things about the movie. And I think you could make a movie about her. That would be fascinating. And her job, and she's a makeup artist, and she is uh, dealing with with corpses, and she has this sexual obsession with with Jesse. I mean, there's there's a whole other movie there, but that's not the movie. That's not the Neon Demon. So yeah. it was like, and why would, are we? Why I are we? Kind of love to see that movie. Yeah, because there's something so interesting about the idea that she is not a model herself, but she's model adjacent at all times. Like she she's a lesbian. Mm-hmm. She has such an appreciation for female beauty. She's working with these women like directly and. And she's friends with these women who are not very giving and not very friendly. They have these st- very strange relationships. But she's also kind of set herself like a little outside and apart from the industry that she's in. And there's there's a ton of contrasts there that are really interesting. But yeah. this is also Jesse's story. Yeah. But it is. It, the contrasts are interesting that she is both 
protective and predatory at mm-hmm. the same time. Uh, I feel like we're segueing into your topic, Tasha, which is female competition. My point with female competition in both of these movies, we talked a bit about how Suspiria doesn't go in some very expected directions as far as the ballet dancers competing against each other and being catty against each other. They find common cause. They find common fears. They find a companionship in each other and a comfort in each other. But at the same time, the larger space of the film is about a group of women seeking power and destroying a group of, for the most part, younger and weaker women or women who have foiled their will in some way or women who they see as as uppity. I mean, there's not really a lot of explanation for why, as, uh, as one of them says, we need to kill off the American bitch. But there is a sense that Really, the men are adjacent to and outside the kind of the inner circle that's being created there. You you see, when you see like the witch's coven, the men are there. But this is a story about female power and a woman who subverts that female power and destroys it. In The Neon Demon, it's much more directly about women competing with each other and a space where success for any one woman seems to mean a failure for a lot more women. They're they're literally put on the block in their underwear and made to march back and forth for a man and, and compete with each other and sell themselves on the market. And the story goes to some very dark and ugly places about the desire to to take in everything that you can about another woman and destroy her in order to strengthen your own power. In in some ways, they're both kind of about, you can call them vampires, you can call them witches, you can just call it the feminine mystique. But both of these films are really about how do I destroy other women in order to make my own femininity stronger? And well, and consider too, when you talk about power, that you have to put a big old asterisk on that as well because um, this competition that is happening uh, among the women in the neon demon is beneficial to men not <laughs> photographers and the men in the picture basically that's what the film is about I mean if you know if you, if you talk about the male gaze I mean it, it is all over this movie I mean li- quite literally when you when you have the photography sequences and uh, you know and the photographers are the look on their faces uh, somewhere between covetous and murderous at the same time but um, yeah, think about that opening shot yeah all the competition here is to be the subject of that male gaze to right. get to get in front of the camera to get in front of in in the, in the spotlight too so that that's the prize yeah and what a prize it is well, I mean, yeah the opening <laughs> shot that tasha alluded to is is jesse posing for a photo in which he's been glamorously murdered in a, in a composition that uh alludes to the uh the, the famous painting death of marat kind of bleeding out but also there's a glamour to it as as well so in in some ways the end of the film is announced by the beginning you know she she loses by winning in a way although there's so there's it's slippery it's slippery as to who this character is in some ways too that I don't even know if we have time to get into. But uh. well, I think that the one of the most interesting things about the film is how she both evolves over the course of the film and reveals herself. I mean, I this Scott. I think Scott nailed it in talking about how I, I talk about her selling out because she's selling herself. But yeah, you're right. She doesn't seem to come with a moral center that she has to give up. Mm-hmm. She comes to Hollywood already vacuous enough to to be part of it. She comes to L.A. perfectly willing to put herself on the, the market. And in, it almost feels like the movie elevates her for that reason it's almost like whatever it it is that she has is she doesn't feel that sense of competition when i was a kid 
I would sneak out into the roof at night. I thought the moon looked like a big round eye. And I would look up and I'd say, do you see me? I'd stay out there for hours. Sometimes I'd fall asleep, just dreaming. About what? What I would be. What was that? I could never figure it out. I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't write. <laughs> no real talent. But I'm pretty. And I can make money off pretty. Jenna Malone's character, Ruby, has these two friends, uh, Gigi and Sarah, played by Bella Heathcote and Abby Lee, both of whom, uh, I believe, were models. Uh, mm-hmm. And they and they look it. And you have various scenes throughout the movie where they're both kind of revealed to be a little desperate to be her. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah much more so. Uh, Gigi is a little more of an anomaly. But there's a sense there of uh, there's the female gaze where they're all looking at each other in that same covetous, murderous way. The men have more power, mm-hmm. um, and the women kind of subvert that at the end. I'm wandering here a bit, I think, but mostly what I'm trying to get at is just the idea that the women are actively selling themselves, the men are the ones who are buying, but they're all kind of corrupted by the same system. And what's interesting about Jesse is that she almost, she changes throughout the movie, but it's more a, a state of like revealing how she's changing. And what pins it more than anything for me is that scene in the hotel where she listens to the girl next door be assaulted and she does nothing about it because what she has become at that point is someone who is perfectly willing like she's the antelope who's willing to just stand there and watch the other antelope get eaten because that leaves her safe or or mountain lion (laughs) 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 if we're gonna go with uh that quite extraordinary was it a mountain lion that ends up in her room that all right that's something else that like he could not have improv that on the day you don't just go down to the corner store and a mountain lion well you don't in terms of necrophilia you don't have someone who is capable of being still as a corpse also made up like a corpse uh you know you, you, that's that seems like a very specialized yeah. skill <laughs> well she is already a corpse makeup artist so they could have sure. actually had a person in corpse makeup like i don't think that they improvised that just kind of literally okay here's a what's supposed to be five seconds of if, you I, painting her if face. i'm that extra i'm gonna want to renegotiate my contract <laughs> Uh, what if you're what if you're the mountain lion extra? <laughs> Do you guys have an explanation for the mountain lion sequence apart from feeling like a uh, reach back to cat people? Like I was getting really oh, strong right. cat you know, people yeah, vibes. That's true. The whole f- yeah, cat people is another one that we could have paired, paired this with because there's tons of that. Oh yeah, stuff sure. there. Um, no, I just think it just it just adds a, a level a element of surreality to the to the film, which I, I think you could say is one large abstraction this is not hollywood as it actually is this is this is a uh, uh, bright seductive nightmarish approximation of hollywood so i think we can just look at that as just one more uh, surreal element yeah it, it's an abstraction of hollywood but it's also again a heightening of hollywood yeah. where all of this sense of competition turns into really physical uh, visceral like specific violence which i believe uh, keith had something to say about yes violence let's talk about violence let's talk about violence in both films let's talk about how it's kind of appropriate in Suspiria that it's set in a dancing academy since everything is so choreographed and, and musical in some ways. It, as awful as some of it is, there, there is a, a weird 
beauty to the violence in this, that film. And there's an ugliness to the violence in Neon Demon, but it's also, again, very choreographed and, and hypnotic and hard to look away from. I interviewed Refn and Fanning together, which was, its, and as did you, Tasha, which yep. is itself interesting because she is so sunny and open and welcoming <laughs> and, and Refn is kind of what you might imagine the devil would be like if you <laughs> that's not fair he's just he's just a very he's a very uh he's saturnine yes that's a good word but uh no nothing against him it was a very pleasant conversation but i always got the sense that that i was uh being humored by someone who was several steps ahead of me in the in the conversation nonetheless uh, i'll share an exchange from from our interview with tran and and up rocks is is uh there are some i said there are some extreme imagery and moments in this film that feel like nothing else i've seen in a film this year is there uh, a sort of a sense of giving viewers something they haven't they're not going to get elsewhere and Refn says i think it's about sexualizing the violence most violence is very mechanical so it's non-sexual but it's like watching bad pornography because it just repeats. If you sexualize it, fetishize it, it has a much deeper effect. Now, a lot of filmmakers would kind of go bend themselves over backwards to say that violence is not <laughs> sexualized. And I feel like in some ways this is a perverse response, but also an honest response that, that there is both of these films kind of play with, with the erotic qualities of the violence and they portray. And I think we can step away from the hand wringing that usually goes along with you talk about excessive violence uh, in, in movies because I don't think we're terribly concerned about negative effects um, of this violence. So let's, let's just just maybe kind of admit that we sometimes we watch these movies because we enjoy watching the way they portray violence. And, and I think... It's an outrage. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Scandalous. I'm not letting my babies watch these films. No, I, I hate violence, except in movies, which, which is part of why I go to certain types of movies is to see violence. So let's talk about the quality of the violence in these films. It, it is unsettling and hard to look away from. Is that, is that accurate enough? It's very, very very sexual violence. I mean, there's a sequence in Neon Demon where Elle Fanning's character is lying in bed asleep and mm. the manager of the hotel, played by Keanu Reeves in his dark and spooky mode, slips into the room and slides a knife into her mouth and she wakes up and he basically tells her to hold still while he slides it in deeper. If there is a more sexualized image of violence in either of these films, I missed it because I'm still stuck on that. <laughs> image. I, I think you're forgetting the, the clink of the blade against her teeth. That's mm. one of the, the, the sound effects <laughs> that plays out. In I that. think that was his way of doing something more disturbing than beyond the Valley of the dolls. Uh, did you, you, you pick that up? On, you feel like that was the oh, reference there? Yeah. I th- yeah. I think that's definitely yeah. one of the, yeah. the part. I mean, of the and I, and I was relieved that that was a dream sequence. Right. I uh, was, but, but, I was uh, kind of offended that that was a dream sequence. Were you? Okay. Oh, because it's just so cheap. The, the whole, yeah, yeah, I imagine, yeah. I imagine not, horror and then I take it back thing. Yeah, I know. It was, not, but I mean, at the same time, it kind of fits in with the implied violence. It's kind of a, a, a carrying through in a, a dream the violence that is in the air around her at all times. I mean that 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 is to me, you know, the essential violence of the Neon Demon is is not the vampirism is not. It's it's nothing explicit really. It is just a sense of being in a, in a world of constant uh, menace for Jesse and for just women generally. Like this is you know, I mean, there's there's almost no more violent scene in the movie to me than than her being photographed mm-hmm. uh, by by you know that that first photographer when he clears the floor and it's just like. It's just going to be the two of us. I was, you know, I mean, your heart sinks. Mm-hmm. And 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 Jenna Malone's character, who's been around, and and kind of knows this skeevy photographer, um, mm, you know, not, is really not, trying to fight not, to stay not, in the. Not Terry Richardson. 
not Terry Richardson, but a Terry Richardson type, I suppose. You know, she wants to be in the room. He has to kind of, you know, and she's she kind of recognizes the situation that is developing, uh, just as we do as as viewers. And to me, that's that is more terrifying and significant almost than than the more explicit moments of violence in the film. I mean, one of the things that's terrifying and significant about the film is again that sequence with the photographer who makes everyone leave is so striking because it is it is full of the threat of rape mm-hmm. and then she turns it around by just viscerally obviously enjoying what he's doing and enjoying the power that it gives her and it it becomes this subverted rape metaphor but at the same time there's like this queasy sort of sense of yes but if you go along with it and enjoy it it's going to be okay. I, I the things that he's saying here about about violence and sexual violence in particular are so confusing to me, and I don't know if he's like interrogating these ideas in detail, or again if he's just kind of working from the hip and doesn't necessarily know what he's saying. Yeah, I, I can't tell with Raffin. He's kind of it's, like it's tough that way. He's like he, playing he, with like, matches, basically. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it, he's working backwards from the, the Camille Paglia essay that would be written about this movie. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, I think with both of these movies, for me, the dread is very interesting. The The tension that both of them build around what might happen is is very interesting and is very well conducted and is, is very well assembled and becomes the reason for experiencing the movie. And then the actual violence when you see it is just kind of degrading and depressing. I mean, I, I, are we going to talk about where Neon Demon goes in the Yeah, end? we may as well. We're, we've, you know, uh, it's a good chance to check out and check back in and I don't know, three <laughs> we, minutes. We've already if, given if, them if, the yeah. mountain lion and the, yeah. uh, and the right. We'll right, but no, but it takes an odd turn about two thirds of the way through the, that. Uh, I think further than that. I think there's maybe just another 10 minutes that feels like another 20 minutes, but right. I, I didn't time it. <laughs> Right. Um, all right. Well, go ahead. Fill us in. So Jenna Malone and, and Sarah and Gigi. Well, Jenna Malone's character, Ruby, uh, makes puts the sexual moves on Jesse and is refused. And so she murders Jesse. And then she and her model friends eat Jesse's body, mm-hmm. which honestly, if the film had ended there, I would like it a lot better. Because at that <laughs> point for me, the metaphor is complete. You yeah. know, the, the metaphor about, about predation, about violence and, and competition and jealousy and where it comes from and the ultimate end of all of these these processes is completely complete. And But it goes on and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And Gigi and Sarah go off on another modeling adventure and then eventually Sarah pukes up a bloody eyeball. Mm-hmm. Because she she can't take it anymore. She can't which, keep which, her insider. Because she can't take it anymore. That was she your can't. She no. Well, she says something. I don't have the line written down, but it's something like, "I can't keep her inside me anymore. I can't contain her anymore." Something like that. Well, I think that she also, says something very literal. Yeah, that also kind of plays into. I don't. There's something undefined about Jesse when she even says something like, "You're not who I seem to be." You know, it's almost like another thing that Fanny and Refn talked about in the interview with me is they they. They never settled on what the neon demon was. Was it Los Angeles? Was it sort of this abstract modeling thing? Was it? Well, I mean, maybe it was Jesse. You know? Oh, maybe I asked in my interview okay. if they figured it out because, which I wouldn't have because that's a kind of annoyingly literal question. To be mm-hmm. honest, it's not the kind of question I normally ask. But so many people asked them during the shoot, "Who's the neon demon?" And he was like, "We're working it out. We're figuring it out." So I asked, "Did you figure it out?" And he pointed to her and she said, yeah. "She's the neon demon." Yeah. Like, so there's sort of like maybe this this elemental quality to her. 
I mean, I know she is, we know who, where she says she comes from, but we don't really know where she comes from. And, and, you know, she seems to fall victim, but maybe this is, this is some sort of, I don't know, maybe we're in some sort of golden bow territory here or something. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a movie worth pondering over if you can stomach it literally, <laughs> you know, if you, <laughs> if you can hold it down, yeah. if you can hold it inside you. I'm, I'm kind of, I like the very, very end of the movie. I like, I like the eating of the eye. Um, oh, yeah. Because I just think, I, I, yeah. is that a metaphor for the film? Is that kind of the consuming mm. eye, right? Yeah. Isn't it, it felt like some sort of interesting visual pun that that uh, kind of, that f- felt kind of in service of, to the whole thing. But I, I, I liked where it, it went. It was a nice, neat ending. Eh, it was almost too neat for me. It was too it was too exaggerated. Yeah. It kind of, for me, the way that, that incredibly extended sequence after the cannibalism is shot kind of took it back out of that place of dreaminess and metaphor and kind of back into a very literal place. And it was a literal place that I didn't buy. <laughs> and again, yeah. much much like my problem with some of the sequences in Suspiria, I just felt it went on too long. And I felt it, it dissipated the dread that the film has built up. I mean, the film has just some very interesting sequences with no violence, like the one where they're standing in the club watching the watching the show, watching the uh, the strange body show with the um, strobe lights going. And there's no physical violence there, but you feel the weight of potential mm-hmm. violence yeah. over every moment. And that's so much more interesting to me than bloody server eyeballs. Or in Suspiria, with watching the knife go into the body over and over and over and over until you're until you're tired of it. And until it becomes such a blatant sexual metaphor that for me it becomes kind of boring. That's fair enough. Okay, that seems like a good place. Now that we're at the end of the movie, we may as well wind things down for a discussion of uh, the, these two films. For now, we will definitely continue it via listener feedback, so please write and or call. Suspiria is available on DVD, and for the moment, that's the uh, only way you can get it here in North America. Uh, we once again picked a movie that it's hard to find. Sorry, but... We can't really apologize if it means that you sought out Suspiria. That is a memorable film you should you should uh, you should watch. And hey, if you are a distributor of great movies, why not put out Suspiria in some form? <laughs> or any? I, I don't even want to look at how many or how few Argento films are available uh, to watch. Yeah, uh, there was via a, streaming. There's a nice run of them on DVD, but then the yeah, the, the, yeah not not yeah. so much uh, the streaming. The Neon Demon might still be hanging around a few theaters. You can just follow the sounds of viewers retching as they watch the uh, second <laughs> half. <laughs> we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment. Your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, want to kick us off? What in the film world has been good for you lately? I am uh, probably late to the table on this one, um, possibly even a couple years late to the table. And my only defense is that everything on the internet is new to somebody at some point. Um, I want to give a shout out to uh, something called Action Movie Kid. Are you guys familiar with the YouTube sensation that Mm -hmm. is Action Movie Kid? No. (laughs) As fathers of uh, relatively small children, I really think you should check it out. Uh, Essentially, there is a man named Daniel Hashimoto. He has a four-year-old son who is very imaginative 
creative and very active. And uh, Daniel Hashimoto was a an animator at Disney and then a special effects person at DreamWorks. So he films his kid running around with, say, a toy lightsaber or a toy blaster or just in uh, environments where he's doing make-believe. And then he adds Hollywood special effects. So the lightsaber cuts through a shelf of toys in the toy store or uh, the blaster goes off and destroys something. He turns uh, the kid's portal gun into an actual portal gun. He turns the kid's uh, spaceship made out of cardboard boxes into an actual working rocket ship. And the kid is so game. The kids playing along with all of it is uh, really part of what makes it. He was actually so successful with this on YouTube over the past couple of years that he has quit his job and is just doing YouTube videos full time. Um, that's how successful they've been. If you go to YouTube and just look for Action Movie Kid, you will find several small, they're almost like vine length. They're, they're quite short, just snippets of this adorable kid running around and wreaking havoc with robots and aliens and just basically all of the fantasies that we think of when we think of movies. It's a whole lot of fun. Um, it's very, very cute. And uh, it's also immensely popular. Like some of these things have 9 million YouTube hits. So oh my gosh. I would feel much worse about having uh, come so late to the table on this, but you guys haven't seen it. So no. it's new for you. I'm sure it'll be new for some of the people out there. Action movie kid. It's a lot of fun. Keith, uh, what do you have? I'm also late to the table on something a couple couple years late, but um, um, it's one of those things that you hear about it, you put it on your Netflix uh, uh, wish list or, or watch list or whatever, and then you, you maybe never get to it. But the other night, I finally got around to watching a film called Ninja Shadow of a Tear, uh, which it, I... Pardon me, is it n- not Ninja 2? It is sometimes known as Ninja 2. Okay. Sometimes known as Ninja Shadow of a Tear. <laughs> okay. And, and I, I love the subtitle so much, I'm just going to go with Ninja Shadow of a Tear. Okay. And um, I heard good things about it. Uh, it is an action film from 2013. And it, is a, it is a sequel. I have not seen the original. Um, it's directed by Isaac Florentine and starring the English action star Scott Adkins. And I'd heard of both Atkins and this film as being kind of the apotheosis of a sort of like sub-theatrical release action film that's actually really interesting and fun to, fun to watch. The plot could not be simpler, um, and, and it is simple to the point of cliche where Scott Atkins plays Casey Bowman, whose wife, his pregnant wife, is killed uh, very early in the film. So he must seek revenge, applying his ninja skills. And uh, uh, it could be straight out of a canon film from the 1980s, which is part of the appeal, frankly, to me. But also, it is extremely well executed. These are great action scenes. Um, uh, Atkins is a very skilled martial artist. Tim Mann is the uh, fight choreographer who's also in the film, and uh, uh, he's quite good. But um, also the way it's shot is the way... I don't understand why more action movies aren't shot this way, which is uh, a lot of long takes where you can see the action. A lot of the camera moves along with the, the fight, not, it doesn't cut away. Like it's not chopped to shreds. You actually see the, the skill on display. It's, it's, uh, it's quite good. So Ninja, Shadow of a Tear, I'd recommend it. Yeah, uh, me too. I, I've seen Ninja too. And I think, I mean, I think in terms of filming action like that, you need somebody who can pull off those moves. I mean, right. Scott, Scott Atkins can, has got it. So show it. You know, you don't have to do the, the John Saxon thing where you're only <laughs> you're only showing him from the waist up. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I I also recommend that film, and I really do want to explore that world of non theatrical action because uh, I know that there are a lot of people who uh, really love that stuff. 
So, Scott, uh, how about you? What have you seen lately? I'd like to recommend a film called The Wailing. Uh, One of the things I love about the new Korean cinema of directors like Bong Joon-ho and and Kim Ji-woon is that they don't care a whit about tonal consistency. Extreme horror can coexist with slapstick comedy or dramatic tragedy, and the movies are better for being disorienting. Uh, A film like uh, Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder, for example, is both a chilling procedural about a serial killer and uh, a lowbrow physical comedy. So I, I saw this film recently, that I saw this film, The Wailing, from Na Hong Jin, which is a massive hit in Asia, and has actually been doing pretty reasonable business here in the U.S., and um, it's, just a, it's just a tonal roller coaster. It's a horror film about this rural village that's been struck by a series of murders and possessions, and it's full of exorcisms and shamanistic rituals, uh, but it's also about... You know, the buffoonish cop who's trying to solve the case, which is a source of comedy, and also about the cop's daughter who falls under this evil spell, which is harrowing and, and, and sad and heartbreaking. And at two and a half hours, you just experience this bit full spectrum of reactions and leave delirious and a little bit seasick. And uh, I, had a, I had a good time with it. I mean, it's a real, like, I get, it's long. It's it's 154 minutes, but um, I'd, I'd recommend checking it out. It was, it's like I said, it's been playing, it played pretty well. Uh, in our houses, it might be trickling around a little bit, but, but certainly once it surfaces on uh, you know DVD or streaming, I would recommend uh, take, taking a look. The Wailing. Scott, this is my apparently my podcast for calling you on homonyms, but you should perhaps spell The Wailing so people can find oh, it. Oh, yes. The Wailing is not wailing as in uh, <laughs> Moby Dick. It's wailing as in W-A-I-L-I-N-G. Uh, and there's a lot of wailing in the movie. It should be the whalings because people do a lot of wailing. That's the sequel, like yeah. aliens. The wailings. Mm, yeah. I think the the sequel should be the wailing. I can't. I, I, I cannot imagine a sequel topping this movie. It, it is. It is. It goes as far as it can go. I will seek both of those things out, and I recommend Ninja to you, Tasha. So Shadow of a Tear. If you have not seen it yet. It comes highly recommended. Apparently, has kick-ass action, which I am always a fan of the kick-ass action. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out July 26th and July 28th. Scott, what do we have lined up? Well, there's something weird in The Next Picture Show neighborhood. (laughs) Uh, On our next uh, show, we'll look at the two Ghostbusters, uh, Ivan Reitman's 1984 blockbuster comedy and the new Paul Feig movie with an all-female ghost-busting quartet. Does the original hold up? What does the gender reversal bring to the new one? And will anyone's childhood be spared after this whole ordeal? Uh, please join us to find out. I think you might have been being sarcastic in that last comment. Uh, very much so. <laughs> I don't know. Scott is a, a big time MRA. <laughs> We've known this about him for this so true. long. This is true. I uh, posted all the message boards. Scott Tobias, <laughs> no review. I refuse. All right. Uh, <laughs> in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Suspiria, The Neon Demon, and anything else film related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find it, everyone these days? Scott? Uh, well, you can find me at uh, NPR, uh, Variety, the New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Vulture, uh, Uprox, and I am the editor and chief of uh, the oscilloscope blog Musings. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. What about you, Tasha? Uh, you can find my film writing at TheVerge.com, where I'm the resident film critic. You can also find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson, no space. 
And you can largely find me at uprocks.com where I'm editing the film and television coverage and occasionally writing. And you can find me on Twitter at kfips3000. See updated on the Next Picture Show via Twitter at nextpicturepod, via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to the uncharacteristically silent Genevieve Kosky for producing the show. You can find her online at Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And she just contributed a couple of pieces to me at uprocks.com. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The next picture show is proud to be part of the film Spotting Family, a podcast, and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Thank you.